Good morning. We'll begin with reading from the book of Luke, chapter 17, and verse number 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he rather not say to him, Prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? See you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, we ask that you would increase our faith. Help us to see the reminders that you give us for the way that you want us to live. Help us to see that the only way that we can live that way is through you. God, open our hearts to the words that you would have us to hear from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Here we see... In this 17th chapter of Luke, Jesus giving a recap of a bunch of the teachings that he had been teaching in the last few chapters. And in Luke 16, ended with Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the crowd about the rich young man and Lazarus. And we learned there, as what Seth preached last week, that there is nothing in this life worth more than living eternally with Jesus in the life to come. And so we come back to chapter 17 and we see this shift where Jesus had been going back and forth teaching the people, teaching the Pharisees and pointing out the false teachings that they were, and then teaching the disciples and pointing out what he wanted them to learn. And so we see here in chapter 17, Jesus circles back and he's teaching directly to the disciples. Jesus is about to make sure that they understand the importance of what he has been teaching. And he's going to emphasize some key points here. Here in just a little while, we're going to see it shift. And Jesus is, it's going to say that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. His earthly ministry is about to end. And this isn't the last teaching that he gives his disciples, and this isn't the last parable. But I think Jesus is wanting to stop and make sure that they get a few key things here in this passage. And so this passage we see highlighted that the life of every believer is marked by a humble, growing faith 
and the relentless redeemer. In verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And so we see it that we all should have a humble growing faith in a redeemer. And we see this played out four ways within the passage. First of, of which is a humble growing faith and the relentless redeemer is marked by a restraint from sin. In verses 1 and 2, he says, And he said to his disciples, Temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. We see a parallel passage to this in Matthew 18 where the disciples had just been arguing about who is the greatest. And in verse number one, he says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, and unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So here we have to ask a question of ourselves, and I found myself asking the question, am I causing others to sin? So if we look back at the passage, this temptation, this stumbling blocks, these traps, these snares, because of a fallen world and because of sin, Temptation in our life, stumbling blocks in our lives, Christ says are sure. This is this word that means it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. They're sure to come, but woe. This is that same woe that Christ has used throughout Luke. Woe to the Pharisees. Woe to the hypocrites. Woe to the people who don't follow Christ and his teaching. And he's pointing it back at his disciples. Woe to the ones through whom they come. It would be better or it would benefit this person for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were cast into the sea and that he should cause or lead one of these little ones to sin. And so we see, am I causing other people to sin? And as I thought about that, how would I do that? And in thinking about it, it's through our actions, through our words, it's through our theology, the way we live, what we believe about the Bible. It's about our lifestyle, about how we act out what we believe about the Bible. 
Am I leading people towards Christ through what I believe and what I say, or am I leading people away from Christ and causing them to stumble? This little one here, while it could be a child, it's meant to, Jesus is teaching new people, people who hadn't heard the gospel or who were just coming to faith in the gospel. And he's saying, these new believers, if you cause them to fall away, it would be better for you to die this horrible death. So is what I'm saying, is what I'm believing, is what I'm preaching causing people to follow Christ or fall away from him? As Seth pointed out a couple weeks ago, am I given to legalism or license? Am I preaching another gospel other than the one that's in Christ alone? See, this question is a daily reality. I don't, I don't get a day off. I don't get a weekend in it. It's a daily reality with inter, eternal implications of whether I'm causing people to sin. And I think the disciples felt the weight of it. The man who does not glory in the gospel can surely know little of the plague of sin that is within him, J.C. Ryle once wrote. And that's true. If we do not glory in the gospel, if we preach a false gospel, we know little of the sin that draws people away from Christ. Paul pointed out this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I should disqualify myself. And so as we think about the daily reality and eternal implications of restraint from sin, the overwhelming question is, again, is my life in my words, causing people to follow Christ or fall away from him. Secondly, he points out in verses 3 and 4 that a humble growing faith in the relentless Redeemer is marked by restoration. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in, a, in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here we see this restoration process laid out, this idea of repenting, rebuking, restoring, forgiving. Here in Luke, Christ gives it as more of a prescription. He just says, this is what you're supposed to do. In Matthew 18, that, with those parallel passages, Christ lays out kind of like the description of what you're supposed to do. And many of us are familiar with that, about repenting, going to your brother. If he doesn't repent, bring others. And this idea of church discipline. 
this idea of sin is not the sin that we struggle with on a daily life, but are willingly seeking God's help and repentance in. This is that willful, directional, habitual sin that leads us away from Christ and leads others to fall away from Christ by our our attitudes and our actions. He says we have to be ready to rebuke. Not only are most people not willing or don't want to rebuke, but people aren't ready to rebuke. See, this process is personal. While it's conflict, it's supposed to be beautiful and that it's supposed to be a restoration process between you and your brother, keeping them from stumbling, keeping them from falling away and leading other people to fall away, keeping them from that woe that Jesus is talking about. So a question we have to ask ourselves, am I eager and ready to rebuke when necessary? And then am I eager and ready to forgive? Am I learning every day and eager to forgive? He points out in the passage, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So this is a person willfully coming, recognizing his sin and saying, please forgive me. I repent of my sin and you must forgive him. At that point in time, the rabbis would have taught that the kind of it was a rule of three. You had a moral obligation to forgive someone three times. And then after the third time, it was kind of like under the law, you could be okay with writing that person off. And Jesus is saying, As he said earlier, 70 times 7, it's not a number, but an idea of continual repentance, continual forgiveness, continual restoration. Seven times in one day, if we think about this, could we truly forgive someone if they did the same thing against us seven times in one day? Ken Sandy said, Conflict always provides an opportunity to glorify God. That is to bring him praise and honor by showing who he is, what he is like, and what he is doing. The best way to glorify God in the midst of conflict is to depend on and draw attention to his grace, that is, the undeserved love, the undeserved mercy, the undeserved forgiveness, the undeserved strength, and the undeserved wisdom he gives to us through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that forgiveness is not a feeling, but a promise. So when he comes to you seven times, we must prepare ourselves in an attitude that we're promising that person that we will not dwell on the sin. It's this idea of when you're on your computer and you're on a website and all of a sudden, Things just start to pop up. Good, bad, and different. You have virus software. Things pop up. We deal with the pop-ups, but we exit out, and we don't focus on the things that pop up. As people's sin pops up into our life, we need to be eager and ready to close it out, withdraw from it, and not dwell on it. We need to be eager and willing to promise people that we will not bring that sin up against them. And we need to be eager and willing to promise people that we won't talk to other people about it. 
See, forgiveness is hard. Living a lifestyle and a theology that leads people to Christ and not causing them to stumble is hard. Forgiveness takes great faith. The granting of forgiveness is directly related to the repentant heart as Jesus taught in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. See, the older brother wasn't willing to forgive the younger brother because he hadn't repented of the sin within his heart. And so he wanted to hold a grudge. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, here we see Paul telling us Christ's teachings on that we are to restore people. We are to overlook sin and love, but that habitual sin we are to bear, we are to rebuke, we are to cause the restoration process. So we need to ask ourselves, does our life look that way? Are we eager to restore? Is our life marked by restoration? And then in verse number 5 and 6, we see the response. So a humble, growing faith in the relentless Redeemer is marked by radical dependency. In verse number 5, we see, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea. And it would obey you. Here we see the disciples with a radical dependency, and what Jesus wants to point out to us that we have to recognize our weakness. The disciples would have heard this and be reminded of all the teachings that Jesus had, and would have thought, probably thought as I thought as I studied this, is, well, how can I lead someone on a daily basis towards Christ and not cause them to sin? Seems impossible. How can I have an attitude always of forgiveness and restoration when people sin against me? It seems almost impossible. And I think that's where the disciples found themselves. They said, Lord, increase our faith. They were helpless to gain more faith without God. It wasn't that they didn't have faith. They recognized that they had faith, but they recognized that the faith they had in themselves was not enough to do what Jesus was commanding them to do, and that they must have faith in the one who was speaking to them, and that it was only through him that they could do these things. A couple weeks ago, when Seth was talking about the mustard seed, and he was talking about it being a small seed, probably the smallest in their garden at that time, but that mustard seed grew into this big tree. Some people speculate that the tree could get up to 10 to 15 feet tall when fully grown, and that it would be a very wide tree. 
And this mulberry tree that it's talking about being uprooted would have been a very common tree in their area, and it would have been known for its strong, deep root system. The rabbis of that day taught that the mulberry tree's root system, not only was it strong, that it could last and survive up to 600 years. So the point of this is not the mustard seed of faith. It's not the amount of faith. It's not what you can do with the faith. Because it's not, he wasn't saying that they were uprooting the tree and planting it in the ocean. The tree was doing them that itself. It wasn't their faith, but the one that they had faith in. So we as Christians need to have a living, growing faith. This is necessary for the sanctification process. So we can ask ourselves this question. Whatever sin that is rooted in me, could it be, upro- could it be uprooted with faith? And the answer is yes, but not in our faith, but in the one who we can have faith in. So the sin that plagues your life, the sin that causes you to directionally go away from God with faith in our Savior, in our Redeemer, we can say sin be uprooted. Romans 7.15, Paul says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He goes on to say in 1 Timothy 12, chapter 1, verses 12 and 17, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those or to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We go back to Luke 14, verse 27, and he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we must ask ourselves, Am I living by faith, a living, growing faith in a relentless Redeemer? Or am I trusting another gospel, a gospel that points us away from the faith that's in Christ, but a faith that's in us, a faith that's in works, a faith that's being good for Christ? No, God wants us to have faith in Him And by having faith in him, he's made it possible that we can do the works to lead other people to Christ.
Next we see a humble growing faith in the relentless Redeemer as marked by remembering who we are in light of who God is. In verse number 7, it says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he has come in from field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I think here Christ, at the end of this teaching, Christ is trying to give them an important reminder of who they are in light of who he is. They've had all this heaviness, this realization that they weren't good enough to do, but they asked for a growing faith, not in themselves, but in Christ. And Christ is reminding them who they are by posing three rhetorical questions. And it's helpful to understand this in the passage because some of these words, we take different connotations in our mind. So the idea of servant, typically we think of as like slave. And this idea of thank, we think of the polite things that we teach our children to say thank you. And this idea of unworthy being without worth And these aren't the meanings that the disciples would have heard in the original language. And so with these questions, the first one being, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in the field, come at once and recline at table? And so this idea of servant would have been a bond servant, or we might say an employee or a hired hand. He would have been a servant, but he would have been contractually obligated to that master. See, he wouldn't have had to have been a day laborer, gone out and find work every day, and worry about how he was going to live day to day. He would have made a contract with someone who had land or money, and he would have said that I am going to work for you and only you. And so it says... Will that servant plowing or keeping sheep, so doing, just doing his job, say to him, when he will come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? And Jesus kind of answers it in saying, will he not rather say? Of course not. So the idea of this is not, it's the end of the day and he's done all of his work. This would have been a midday meal. This would have been something that was, he was contractually obligated to prepare his employer food. And so the employer is not going to say, no, 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 you go and you go sit down and let, let me fix you meal. Christ goes on to say, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Is it not more likely that after You've done your job after you've done your duty. See, this isn't some harsh reality where this person isn't getting to eat and isn't getting to, is just being slaved away. He's doing what he's contractually obligated to do, and then he gets to eat and drink before they go back. And then it goes on to say, Does he 
thank the servant because he did what was commanded. This isn't the idea of that the master isn't happy with what he's done and the master is not being polite. It's this idea of thank and the word in the Greek is charis. So this idea of a gaining a favor or a grace. Does the servant gain an extra standing by doing what he's contractually obligated to do? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This idea of unworthy doesn't mean without worth. It has the idea of not gaining any more favor than what we were supposed to do. So when we've done what we're supposed to do, we shouldn't look to pat ourselves on the back and gain favor like the Pharisees did by praying loud prayers or making flashy statements, but by saying we have only done what we're supposed to do. We can only do this by remembering our position in Christ and who he has made us. This isn't this idea of you doing something for a quid pro quo. Like this servant wasn't saying, okay, so I feed you and I do my job and then you'll pat me on the back. No, he was doing his job because that was his job. It wasn't this idea of earning grace or this idea of legalism that if I meet a certain expectation, then I'll be okay. But this message from Jesus wasn't this as harsh as it may seem to our minds in this day. Because if we look back in Luke chapter 12, verse 35 and 37, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lance burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. So this isn't some harsh master who expects us to do an unbearable, unthinkable task. This is the master, Jesus Christ, who has said that when he comes, he will serve us. This was Jesus' example of picking up the towel and washing the disciples' feet. It's this idea of recognizing who we are in light of who Christ is. Luke 14, 11 says, For everyone who humbles himself shall be exalted, and he who exalts himself shall be humbled. It was pointed out, this idea in the trilogy of parables in Luke 15, of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. This idea that Jesus is a relentless redeemer, that he's seeking to bring back people, not by a means of anything that we can do, but understanding who we are in light of who he is. John Piper says, the crucial issue in advancing the kingdom of God is not the quantity of our faith, but the power of God. So it goes back to the disciples' plead in verse number five to increase our faith. It's not the amount of faith, 
It's not what our faith is doing, but who our faith is in, the power of God and who we have faith in. It's this living, growing faith that we're trusting God. And so we have to ask ourselves, is our life marked by a humble, growing faith in this relentless Redeemer? Is our life marked by a restraint from sin and the seriousness of that? Is our life marked by a growing sense and need of restoration? Am I willing and eager to forgive, rebuke, restore? Is my life marked by a growing dependency on Christ for this? Increase our faith. And then is my life marked by a growing realization of who I am in light of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Ephesians three twenty and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the work, power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, Forever and ever, amen. So as we think about where we are in the Christian life and who we're believing in, wherever you're at, I would say understand the severity, but understand the goodness and have faith in a relentless Redeemer. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you gave us an example, that you are our great teacher, that you didn't give us a task that we are unable to complete, but that we can have faith in you and the work that you did on the cross and that you completed it for us. Dear God, I pray that you increase our faith. Help us to live lives that are in line with your gospel and your truth. Help us to live lives that are in point other people to you and your love. God, I pray that you would increase our faith today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.